Thank you for choosing the Abide College Ministry Podcast. If this is your first time listening, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message inspires and challenges you. Now here's a message from one of our leaders, Blake Klein. If you have your Bible, which I hope you do, uh, pick it up and let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be reading from verses 9 through 11. And tonight... As LB kind of said a moment ago, we're going to talk about why we worship. And that's kind of like a very like broad topic, but I think it's something very important. And it's something that we need to kind of lean into, focus in on. And I believe tonight that Philippians and these few verses give us the ultimate reason and the total purpose as to why we worship and what motivates our worship, not only in, in acts of singing, not only in, in service and mission, but in our life and out of our hearts. So let's read these few verses, verses 9 through 3, 11, excuse me. Therefore, right, brain fart, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name that is above every name, the name that is above every name, so that the, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. I just ask that we would lean into that tonight. That this wouldn't be about us. This wouldn't be about singing. This wouldn't be about abide. I just pray tonight that we would be able to lay aside all our anxieties all our fears, all our disappointments, all our sadness. And just in these next few moments, look to you as the thing that can bring us peace. Jesus, we thank you for everything that you're doing and everything that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, so I want to introduce to you tonight two people. And these two people are... One is mentioned in the Bible, and the other, I I don't think he is, but he may be in Acts, and I didn't really look into it, but I'm pretty sure he's not. And the first guy I'm going to introduce you tonight to is Paul. And most of us, if you kind of grew up in church, who in here knows who Paul is, right? Paul. So Paul literally, he wrote the book of Philippians. Paul writes this book in A.D. 62, and and forewarning, if you hate history, you're going to hate the next few moments, because I'm about to give you a little bit of history That's okay. It's really important that we understand that as we kind of move forward into what we're going to talk about. So Paul writes this book in A.D. 62, and what I want to tell you is that Paul writes this book from a prison cell. I don't know if you know that or not, but when he's writing this book, and and what's crazy is this book has been defined as a book of encouragement and a book of joy, which is kind of like oxymoronic. Like if you're in prison, it's probably kind of hard to have encouragement and to have joy, right? That's kind of a weird, like, thing going on here. And so he writes this book in A.D. 62. And what you see is, is in the book of Acts, the reason that the church at Philippi was formed was because Paul is arrested. Paul gets arrested, and he ends up being freed, and then he meets these two women, and they found this church in Philippi. And one of the reasons that he gets arrested uh, is because he is a part of 
the gospel, right? He, he was there preaching and teaching the message of the gospel. And, and, and in Acts specifically, there's this story where he meets this, uh, this fortune teller, right? And there's this girl that she's telling all these fortunes and she's doing all these things. And, and she's like following Paul around saying, these are men of God. These are Christians. These are those Christians. And he, he really, he just kind of gets aggravated. And he basically says, hey, demon, get out of there. And then this girl like goes normal. And so the guys that owned her, so she was a slave. They were making money and making profit off of her, right? And so they're making money and they're making profit off of her. And so when this happens, what happens? She loses her ability to tell fortunes. Guess what happens? She can't make money. The guys that were making money aren't real happy. So Paul, he, he did these things. Like he caused economic trouble for people that were a part of a pagan religion that was making money. There was also this thing where they would, they would trade idols. So you would go and you would buy an idol uh, for a price and... and, and uh, that's one of the things when you're preaching the message of the gospel where there's only one God and it's not a God that's a, an idol, you're going to begin to cause trouble. So in Rome, there was this economic trouble that he was causing. Not only that, the culture of Rome was pagan, which meant there was all these different religions going on. And so for Paul, he was a part of the mission of the gospel, but it was not supported by Roman citizens. He had freedom to do it, but it cost him several times. And Paul is writing this letter and it is written in A.D. 62. And one of the biggest reasons that Paul is put in prison, see, in this time period, the idea that Caesar, Caesar was Lord, right? And so for Paul, he is giving and communicating the message of a new king, of a different king, King Jesus. And as he communicates this message, he's not only causing economic trouble in Rome, he's also causing uh, religious trouble in Rome. Now he's causing political trouble in Rome, and in the Roman Empire. And so in AD 62, he writes this letter from a jail cell. He's been put in prison because of all these different things that he's been doing. And then uh, he's there. And Paul stood out because of the message that he was promoting. He stood out because of the message of the gospel. He stood out because he was saying somebody was Lord other than Caesar. The second guy I want to introduce you tonight to is Nero. How many of you have ever heard of the name Nero? Few of you, okay, so Nero. Nero, let's rewind. So this book is written in AD 62. Let's rewind to AD 54. I told you I'm going to give you a little bit of history tonight. So AD 54, uh, uh, King or Caesar Nero becomes the Roman emperor at the age of 16. Can you imagine that? Like, I don't even know why they let me drive when I was 16. This guy is like the Roman emperor of a whole, like, like a whole empire, the empire, the greatest empire of the world. So at 16, he becomes the Roman uh, emperor, the Roman Caesar. And so he is ruling over uh, the whole empire, the greatest empire in the world. Him and his mother Agrippa are, are ruling it like kind of together. And so you can even look on like Wikipedia if you'd like to later. There are these coins that uh, the coin or the currency that they would use would have Nero on one side of the coin and Agrippa on the other side of the coin. And so what happened uh, a couple years later in A.D. 59 at age 21, Nero is like, I'm sick of you, mom, has her killed. Crazy, right? Like, can you imagine, like, you're, you're 21 years old and you have your mom executed? Like, that's what happens here. And so what happens after this is this moment in Nero's life where, where from A.D. 54 to A.D. 59, he is ruling the Roman Empire in a great way. Like, he's really good at what he does. Um, it's even said that he, like, kind of went into Egypt and they began to get resources from there. And, and the Roman Empire was great. But I read this quote and it said this. Um, after he killed Agrippa, uh, it says that he lost all sense of right and wrong after his mother's death. And so this happens in A.D. 59. And what is three years later? A.D. 62. Nero is the Roman emperor. A.D. 62. Paul is a mission for, for the gospel. 
in, in AD 62, this book is written. Two totally opposite people, two people that are totally different, one reigning in terror and fear and, and as a horrible person, and then the other is this man that is locked up because of the mission of the gospel and his belief that Nero's not king, but Christ is king. And we find these verses in Philippians. And what you need to understand about the book of Philippians is that in Philippi, Philippi was a very, like the citizens of, of Philippi, they were this prideful group of people. Why were they prideful? Because they were like super hyped to be Roman citizens. Like they, there was a pride about themselves. If someone were to ask you like, hey, what, um, what empire are you part of? And they'd be like, I'm a part of the Roman empire. That was how they lived. And so tonight, what we see in verses 9 through 11 is this, this moment where in AD 62 that Paul's in some chains, he's locked up, he's in prison, and it's a place that's kind of weird, and it's a place that doesn't make sense, but yet this book of Philippians is considered a book of encouragement and a book of joy. And what I want to talk to us tonight about is this idea of how do we worship like Paul did, right? Like when things get hard, like when there's, there's chaos, like when there's a loss of parents or the failing of a test, or whatever it may be, your, your frustrations get to you, and it's real easy to be like, oh, I don't really want to worship you right now, God. Like, you're not really helping me out. Like, I thought this was like, if I work for you, you work for me. Like, things are all good. Like, how do we worship as Paul did when it feels like we're living in a prison cell, when it feels like we have chains on in our life, and how do we, even in the midst of that, in the chaos and the frustration and the hardship and the difficulties and the moments that you don't understand, how do you worship God like Paul did. And I think he tells us. And so the question I want to answer tonight is, how do we worship despite all of the mess that we find ourselves in? And what does it mean to truly worship in all moments? And I think for us tonight, for us to truly understand this, what I want to do is I want to redefine what worship is for you. And, and I know that's a very bold thing for me to say, and I, and I hope this comes across good. But for many of us, how many of you grew up in church? All right, raise your hand. How many of you grew up in church? Okay, so a good bit of us. So for many of you, you think church is like coming to something like this, or worship is coming to something like this. You sing the songs, you do spiritual karaoke, and like you get up here and you're lifting your arms and you're praying, and like, you know, some of you think, how many of you, you know, you think of worship? That's how you think of worship, right? Um, for others of you, and I know some, some people, I do this on Instagram too, you know, you get your Bible, you make your coffee, and you take a picture of it, and it's like... This is my worship, like I'm getting my quiet time. Many of us believe that's what worship is, right? And then others like missions and sermons. Have you gone on mission trips? Like you feel like maybe that's worship. And those are all like, I think those are all parts of worship. And for those of you that didn't raise your hand, that didn't grow up in church, you may believe worship to be this. Worship is like you see it where like maybe different religions will make pilgrimages. Have you ever seen where like uh, in Islam they all take that pilgrimages, pil pilgrimage? to Mecca, and there's all these thousands of people, and they're like praying. Some of you may think of that as worship, or you may see all these Christians. You may have come with someone tonight, and the person next to you got their hands lifted, and they ain't wearing any deodorant, and you're like, what is this? Is this worship? Because I ain't really feeling it. And so like some of you some of you tonight, that's maybe like how you view worship. So we all have this idea of worship. We all have this different viewpoint of worship. But what I want to tell you tonight, and this is what I believe worship to be. I want you to listen to this. What is worship? Worship is the position of our hearts toward God in all moments. Worship is the position of our heart towards God in all moments. And so I say that, and you may be asking yourself this, well, am I worshiping? 
And I'm going to answer that for you. This is what I want you to do. If you want to know if you're living in worship, ask yourself this question. Where is my heart positioned towards God in different moments? So I want you to think about this. Where is your heart positioned when things are amazing? Like rainbows and butterflies, and you've got the girl or the guy on your arm, and everything's beautiful and cozy and great. Like, it's real easy to be like, man, God, you are good, right? How many of you can say, like, that's, it's, it's easy to worship God in those moments, all right? Now, what about when things are bad, when things are hard? How many of you turn your back on God? Compare the two. See, if there's not a balance there, if your position of your heart is not the same in the good as it is in the, as it is in the bad, then I would say maybe you're not living in worship. Maybe you're not really pursuing worship. Maybe your heart is not positioned in worship towards God tonight because what we have to do is we have to be able to look at life and find ourselves in moments where like things are at peace and things are good in our hearts and we find ourselves in moments of anxiety and fear and things are good in our hearts. Why? Because our heart, our heart reflects our worship. Our position of our heart is where we find worship. And I believe this. The purest form of worship is found in the place where our hearts are positioned in awe of God in the moments of hard and good. The purest form of worship is found in the place where our hearts are positioned in awe of God in the good and in the bad. So you look at Paul. It's bad, right? Like he's expecting to die. Like if you read through uh, chapter 1, which we walked through last semester, there's these moments where he talks about like, he's like, hey, if I live, dope, I'm going to keep on preaching the gospel, but if I die, I'm about to be with Jesus. So it's like this, like for him, it was like good and bad, I don't really care, I've got worship. My heart's positioned where it needs to be. And why? Well, I believe Paul shows us that. See, it's an easy idea to understand, right? Like, like you can look at this and be like, well, of course. Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to live that out. That's the Christian life, whatever. Or for some of you, uh, you may not be a Christian, and you're like, y'all are wild. Like, that's crazy. Like, I want to be upset when things are hard. I don't want to be like a freak smiling because someone dumped me. Like, it's a very weird place to find ourselves. But I believe in these few verses, what we see is Paul shows us the foundation and the reason why his heart could be positioned where it was. And in these verses, I think it shows us what we are called to be in remembrance of as we prepare our hearts to be in a place of worship. That when we look at these few verses in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, we remember this. We think upon this. We let it rest in our souls. And we find peace in that. And we allow it to motivate the position of our heart and motivate us to live out and live in pure worship. Verses 9 through 11, let's look at them. It begins like this. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. I want us to first look at this idea like God has highly exalted him. Exalt. Okay, so I'm going to define it, like, so I, I looked up two definitions, exalt. This word is kind of weird, like, we don't usually use this word in, like, day-to-day, -day, but, but it means this, raised to a higher rank or position of greater power, and then the second definition is to, to hold someone or something in a very high regard or to think or speak very highly of, right? So it's this idea, idea of being exalted, and what's interesting, this is another little nerdy thing, so in the Greek, when you read the Greek, I know Macon, you know a lot about the Greek, right? Yeah, whatever. Anyways, so in the Greek, 
this particular word, like, I want you to understand, like, how Paul was coming across here. This word that he uses for exalt is basically could be translated super exalt or hyper exalt. And this word right here is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Why? Because I really think he's trying to get the point across that Jesus is exalted high. Why is he exalted high? It says, therefore, why? Because of, we talked about last week the humility and the obedience of Jesus that he died on the cross and he rose again. And out of his humility to God and his obedience to God, that is where he becomes exalted. And Paul is wanting us to know that he is exalted high. See, God exalts Jesus and places him uh, as this person with a name that is above all names. And, and, I, and I didn't really know this until I started reading about it, but when we think about that, we think, okay, well, is the name Jesus? No, it's not. The, the name that Jesus is given, the name above all names, it takes him to equality with God. It's Lord. And to support this, I have a few verses out of Isaiah. The idea here is that Jesus is given the name Lord. And I want you to keep in mind, he's given the name Lord, and who is considered Lord in the Roman Empire? Nero. Yeah, Caesar. Listen to these verses in, in, in Isaiah. And these, if you've ever read through Isaiah, if you're not a Christian, Isaiah is this book in the Old Testament. It's by a prophet named Isaiah, and he, he points towards the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Lord that's going to save humanity and unite the kingdom. In Isaiah 41, 13, it says, I am the Lord your God. And the next verse says, I am the Lord, that is my name. That's Isaiah 42, 8. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. That's Isaiah 43, 11. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no other God. That's Isaiah 44, 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah 45, 18. This idea here that Paul wants you to know that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is exalted high above all names. That he is now the Lord of all lords. The king of all kings. The, the Lord of your whole life. The Lord over all the things that you may be dealing with tonight. He is above all of that. And Paul is wanting you to know he's exalted high. So God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then he continues on and he says... So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. As Christ is exalted as Lord, there is this response that Paul is telling those at Philippi. He says, remember this as a letter of encouragement. Every knee should bow. Your life should be in bowing to Jesus. That humility we talked about last week where Jesus humbled himself under the will of the Father we're called to do the same thing, that when we remember that Jesus is exalted high, we humble ourselves under him. And it says that every knee should bow in heaven, at the end of all things in heaven, and when earth and heaven are one, all knees will bow before him and under the earth. So here's the thing, what Paul is telling us tonight, if you don't believe, if you do believe, you will bow because he is above every name. He is above all things. I'm going to say that again. If you believe, and if you don't believe, you will bow. And Paul is telling us this. It's this physical response. And I think for us tonight, like, are our hearts in that physical response? Living on our knees, 
confessing that he is Lord, confessing that he is King, remembering that he is who brings us peace, he is who brings us hope, he is the one who gives us something to lean into when there is nothing else to count on because he is exalted high. This is a physical response, but I think our hearts can live in this. Is your life in response to this? Is your life in response to this? Like, do you really live that? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that one day when it all ends, when it all comes to a close, and when you have given your last breath, you're going to bow, and you're going to know that Christ is exalted high, whether you like it or you don't like it. And I know that's hard to think about. And I know that's something we like to tiptoe around. And I know that's something that doesn't feel good. But sometimes the gospel is not meant to feel good. Because I want us to know tonight that Christ is exalted high. And, and we find worship when we remember that. And in these last couple of verses, he says this, And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In response to Jesus being Lord There's this response to the heart. What does Jesus say? He says in Matthew, he literally says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Is Jesus in everything you talk about? And I'm not saying you're like one of those weirdos that goes around talking about Jesus like 24-7, bugging the crap out of people. But Jesus' love can be in your words. Jesus' mercy can be in your words. Jesus' grace can be in your words. The, the understanding here is that we're going to confess that Christ is Lord like one day, but I believe that we can confess that Christ is Lord by the way that we talk to people, by the way that we talk about people, by the way that we show people that we care about them when they're going through things that hurt. Our words show them that we believe that Christ is Lord and there is something better, that there is a hope that can be found. See, what's beautiful about these verses is this. It declares and it elevates who God says Jesus is to be. It declares that Jesus is the name above all names and it elevates Him above us, above all creation. And it puts Him in His rightful place. That what we see at the end in Revelation where it kind of repeats here that the kingdom of heaven and earth will come together and peace will be found. So for us... These few verses give us hope, right? Like, they give us hope, right? Like, you look at this and it's like, man, life sucks, but I got this. I got Christ. I got a foundation. Why do we worship? We worship because of this. We remember who He is. We remember what He's done. We remember everything about Him, and we don't forget it. We don't grow tired of it. We don't let the gospel go from good news to old news. We, we rest in that. And when we rest in it, we find hope. And what I want to tell you tonight is whatever you're going through, like he cares about it. He's crazy about you. And this is why we worship. This is why we worship. Because he exalts. He is exalted above all things. And so there are three things that I think happen when we are reminded of who Jesus is by these words, right? Paul writes it, AD 62, he writes this letter, he's there, and we are reminded of who Jesus is as Lord. Our worship and the position of our hearts does three things, and I want you to write these three things down. If you have notes, if you have a cell phone, type them in. I think this can be something that maybe you think about. 
The first thing is this, it gives hope to the hopelessness. When, when we remember this and we live out worship, it gives hope to the hopelessness. Because when we see people that are hurting on campus, when we see people that are hurting next to us, when we see people that are struggling, when we see people that are struggling with anxiety, with porn addiction, with whatever it may be, alcohol, whatever, you know you see people struggling. Do you give them hope? Do you worship and you show them, man, there's something that you can find hope in. There's something that you can find rest in. There's something that you can put your life in. And you don't have to live a hopeless life anymore. See, when we remember that Christ is exalted high, we live under him in humility as he lived in humility under his father. What we do is we begin to live that out. We begin to show the world around us that. And what does it do? The first thing it does is it gives hope to the hopelessness. That a position of our heart of worship gives hope to those who have no hope. The second thing is this. It reminds of us reminds us of our purpose. It reminds us of our purpose. And what I want to tell you tonight, like, I think we get this kind of confused. Because when we begin to think about purpose, like, we think, what is my purpose? What I want to tell you tonight, none of this is about you. Like, none of this is about you. You realize that, right? Like, your relationships, it's not about you. Your sports, it's not about you. Your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that relationship, if you get married one day, that's not about you. What if your academics, like that's not about you, right? Like, what does it say? Christ is exalted above all things, above all things. And your purpose is found when you lean into that and say, I know that my life is not my own, and I know that my life is not about me, and that my purpose is found in who He is and who Christ has came and declared Himself to be as the Son of God, and He died, He rose, God exalts Him, we find purpose. And what I want you to know tonight, whatever you're dealing with, a lot of the trouble that you have going on in your life, you're so focused on yourself, you're not realizing that your purpose is not found in who you are or what you do or the things that you can gain or the things that you can get. Your purpose is found when you lean into these verses and you say, I'm putting my heart in a position of worship. That's when you find your purpose. None of this is about you. And this last thing is what I really want us to lean into. Worship, when we worship, when we lean into that, it reminds us that spilt blood, it reminds us that spilt blood and a broken body made us whole. That spilt blood and a broken body made us whole. See this, these two characters I introduced you to earlier, right? Who was it? Nero and Paul. I know they're moving, but y'all keep, y'all keep eyes on me. So Nero and Paul, right? So Paul writes this letter in AD 62. And what was it? A, a letter of encouragement, right? A letter of joy, right? And what we find in, in this next few years in, in AD 64 is when Nero really, really gets psycho. Like he really loses it. AD 64, uh, he begins to hate Christians more than he ever has. And what he does is out of his hatred towards Christians, he burns the city of Rome. Like, listen to this. This is insane. Okay, so... Nero wanted to, he wanted to build and, and rebuild Rome. And the way that Roman, the Roman Empire worked, there was a Senate. And he would have to go through the Senate if he wanted to do that. And more than likely, he wasn't going to get approved to do all those things. And so, like, it's kind of like what Trump's trying to do with the wall. All that process, right? So, like, 
there's a process that he had to go through. And he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to burn down the city of Rome. I'm going to set a fire. And he thought to himself, who am I going to blame? I'm going to blame the Christians. I'm going to say that they set Rome on fire. And so he does it. He sets, he sets Rome on fire. And the city burns like crazy. And he begins to blame these Christians. And what does this do? It does two things. One, it fulfills what he wants. And then the second thing that happens is that the empire of Rome begins to hate Christians. And what we find is this interesting thing that in AD 64, AD 64, two years after Paul writes this letter, what a letter of encouragement, a letter of joy, what we find is that these Christians that begin to be killed. See, what is said to have happened is that he burns this city, and, and what would happen is this kind of interesting thing is he would have these big parties, right? And uh, at these parties, what would occur is that Nero would bring in these Christians, and it would be nighttime, and at this time in A.D. 64, there was no light bulbs. And so what he would do is he would tie these Christians to these posts, and these were confessing Christians, right? It says that those that confess to be followers of Jesus. And he would set them on fire to light his parties. How do you think that they were able to confess? How do you think they were able to worship in a moment of pain and in a moment where fire was burning them? You don't think that two years later that these words weren't still in their memory? You don't think two years later that Paul wrote this letter for the purpose of then? That in A.D. 64, these people being killed and murdered by Nero would be able to say, you can kill us, Nero, but you are not our Lord. You can kill us, Nero, but you are not our Lord. And the reason they were able to do that because they remembered that spilt blood and a broken body made them whole. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Christ. That it was the death of Christ, his broken body, which we're going to take part in communion in a few minutes to remember that. His broken body and spilt blood. I'm going to light these candles and then we'll begin communion. And I want you to think about those people, much like these candles, they're being burned, right? Like this candle. And it lit up these parties. What we find in 1 Corinthians is this remembrance of what Jesus did. And these verses that Paul has for us are encouragement. And they give us a reason to worship. And they give us something to lean into. And they give us hope. And they give us purpose. And what it says is this. Jesus is there and he's with his disciples. And these are kind of like right before he's taken to be killed. And, and what does he say? He says, this is, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my body that was broken for you. Beaten, killed, destroyed, and broken. He said, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this is... The cup of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance 
of me. See, much like those words that Paul writes, these people that are being murdered are able to be in remembrance of this. That a broken body and spilt blood gave their heart a hope to find in worship. That they could place their heart in a position of worship. Where are you at tonight? Where is your heart position? Is it in a place of worship? Compare the two, the good and the bad. We're going to take communion. Can you come up? We're going to play some, play some guitar. And here's the thing. I know some of you have things to do, whatever. But really think about it. And what I would ask tonight is, if you don't know for sure, like if you do not know for sure, like if you could say like, I really don't know if I've really been living this out. Like, I have to have this conversation with myself all the time. Like, do I really find peace? I want to ask you this. Do you find peace in Christ? Do you find peace in the remembrance of what Christ did for you? Do you believe that he is exalted high? Do you believe that he is who he says he is? And if not, I would ask you, don't come and take this communion. Don't. But that's an opportunity for you to place your heart into the hands of Christ tonight. If that's something you need to do, I'm going to stand up here. And then we have some other people, some other people. Iva can, can talk with you. Kendall can talk with you. Zach can talk with you. Macon can talk with you. Would you lean into that tonight? And would you remember that it was a broken body and spilt blood that makes you whole?